You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Social engineers are expecting us to not slow down because we don't. We haven't given them evidence that we do. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Hacking Humans podcast, where each week we look behind the social engineering scams, phishing schemes, and criminal exploits that are making headlines and taking a heavy toll on organizations around the world. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is Joe Kerrigan from Harbor Labs and the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. we got some good stories to share this week. And later in the show, my conversation with Jeremy Fuchs. He's a cybersecurity researcher at Avanon. We're going to be talking about the replier attack. All right, Joe, before we jump into our stories this week, we got a bit of follow-up here. You want to uh, lead us into this segment? Sure. First comment comes from a listener named Wayne, who writes in with some comments about episode 245, where we talked about Matt's wife buying a gift card at Dick's Sporting Goods. Right. And then having her other card, not the one she used to buy the gift card, but a a MasterCard being used at Dick's.com. Yeah. Uh, where the one she used was a uh, American Express, I believe. Okay. And Wayne says, it is possible that the author's wife made a purchase at Dick's Sporting Goods in person. Yeah. Uh, and Wayne guesses that she doesn't have an RFID-protected wallet and that somebody scanned her wallet with an RFID reader huh. and got probably the MasterCard and the uh, American Express card in the return values. Uh-huh. And... When they went to use it online at dicks.com, they uh, said, we'll use the MasterCard because that's probably what she used at uh, at Dick's, which is a safe assumption, I guess. Huh. Um, it's piggybacking off the scheme uh, to grab the grab credit card numbers and then use it at the .com site. Yeah. Uh, which makes sense, I, I guess. One question is how would they have gotten the CVC, which is the card verification code on the back and the right. zip code? Right, right. Um, I don't. I don't know. I don't know that information. The zip code is not on the credit card, but I think the CVC is. Yeah. Um, but I. I don't. I'm not sure how this works. I. I. You know what? I really have to look into the. Uh, into the RFID process in a in a chip. Oh, I did. I oh, did. You did. Yeah. Okay. I did. I look. Actually, uh, I found a video about it. Uh, uh, since we talked about it, so okay. I'll I'll include a link to that in the show notes for our listeners, and you can check it out as well. Uh, and we can uh, chat about it uh, next time. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I'll handle this next one. Um, Michael writes in and says, Hi, Dave and Joe. I hadn't used ChatGPT until a few minutes ago, but I thought I'd share my first three responses for you to enjoy or cringe at. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So the first um, prompt was, write a haiku about Chuck Norris going fishing, and that's fishing with an F. Uh, Chuck Norris fishes, silent patience, steady hand. River trembles, yields. Mm. Oh, that's good. I like that. That's actually a pretty good haiku. <laughs> it's pretty good. Uh, the second one is write a haiku about Chuck Norris fishing, and this is fishing with a PH. Right. Chuck Norris fishing, online hackers beware now. Justice is served well. <laughs> you gotta love a good Chuck Norris not a, joke. Not as, a, not, a gr- not as good of a haiku, but still pretty funny. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, you know, ChatGPT knows the difference between fishing and fishing. Yes. So. Uh, and then the third uh, prompt was, write a review of the Hacking Humans podcast by Chuck Norris. And uh, ChatGPT said, I apologize, but Chuck 
Norris does not host or produce the Hacking Humans podcast. It is hosted by cybersecurity experts Dave Bittner and Joe Kerrigan. All hey, right. that's us. That's, <laughs> ChatGPT knows who we are, Dave. Yeah, and somehow it thinks we're experts. Right. I'm a little less comfortable than I was two seconds ago. <laughs> right. However, as an AI language model, I can still provide a review of the podcast. Uh-oh. <laughs> it says... The Hacking Humans podcast is an excellent resource for anyone looking to improve their awareness of cybersecurity threats and how to stay safe online. Dave and Joe are engaging hosts who take a deep dive into various types of cybercrime, such as phishing scams, malware attacks, and social engineering techniques. They explain these concepts in everyday language, making them accessible to even the non-technical listener. Well, I'll take that. Yeah, that's a pretty good review. Yeah, yeah, I'll take it. Interesting. Uh, I'm, I'm guessing that... Uh ChatGPT has been trained on language that includes podcast reviews. Yeah. So I'm going to guess by this review that most of our reviews are positive. Yeah, and I would guess also that it probably vacuums up every transcript that we have because every one of our shows is transcribed and on the CyberWire website. Yes. So I would guess that those have been acquired by the, le- <laughs> by the language model as well and, and used in it. Um, one thing that fascinates about fascinates me about this is that um, that they use the phrase deep dive. Okay, so they say Dave and Joe are engaging hosts who take a deep dive into various types of cybercrime. Right. That is uh, a writing um, what, crutch. What, crutch. Uh, crutch. Uh, yeah. Trope. Um, a habit. I don't know. It, what, one of the writers on the CyberWire staff really likes to make use of that turn of phrase. Deep dive. Deep dive. And so what's fascinating to me is that there's probably a lot of writing on the CyberWire website and even could be writing, describing this show that uses that turn of phrase. So for it to come back in ChatGPT using that specific turn of phrase, that's fascinating to me. Yeah, I would agree. That's very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, our thanks to uh, everyone for writing in. Of course, we love hearing from you. Uh, you can email us. It's hackinghumans at n2k.com. All right, Joe, let's jump into our stories this week. I'm going to start things off for us. Uh, my story comes from the folks over at Bleeping Computer. Uh, <laughs> I love is, the name uh, of that. Yeah. It's always been one of my favorites. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and this is written by uh, Bill Tulas, and uh, it's titled Sextortionists Are Making AI Nudes from Your Social Media Images. Now, this is interesting. Yeah, so actually it's a warning from the FBI uh, who, uh, through their IC3 portal, uh, published an alert that they're tracking an uptick in this kind of scam um, extortion activity. Um, so just real quick, I mean, sextortion is a type of uh, online blackmail where the bad guys will threaten you with publicly leaking explicit images or videos that in the past they had stolen right. or acquired, um, and usually they would demand money yeah. uh, in order to not make that videos or images public. And you would feel compelled to deliver the money because— you had absolutely had a lapse in judgment where you allowed these guys to take these, get a hold of these images. Correct. So Correct. that brings up my point here. Uh, does the fact that these guys are now doing this make it easier to turn down actual sextortion attacks? 
so that's a really interesting question. And there's here's an interesting um, little tidbit about this. Okay. The FBI says, based on recent victim reporting, the malicious actors typically demanded either payment mm-hmm. in the form of money or gift cards with threats to share the images or videos with family members or social media friends if the funds were not received. Or they demand that the victim send real sexually themed images or videos. Never do that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Never do either one of these things. But you could imagine how someone could be in a state of fear and, yeah. uh, you know, emotional dismay yeah. that they would absolutely. I they would do this. that. If you don't do this, then that. we're going to share this this image that's worse than anything you've ever been a part of right. with all your friends and family. Um, yeah. Yeah, the... Um, I, right now, my mind is going into a really dark place, and I want to get out of that. Okay. <laughs> but because of what you just said, but I and I would, that would be horrifying. Yeah. Um, does the FBI make notice make note of who's being targeted, whether or not it's men or women? Uh, they don't uh, say anything specifically about uh, sex or gender here. They do say that some of these folks are going after people who are underage. Right. Um, well, they don't care who they go after; they're criminals. Right. Right. Um, uh, they do say that— Although if they're asking those people to send nudes, they have a bigger problem than just extortion. Yeah, yeah. But, the, you know, the whoever's doing this is most likely outside of the the long arm of U.S. law. Yeah, but nothing nothing unites foreign law enforcement like uh, CSAM. Uh, yeah, that's true. Uh, it, it really is the universal disgusting thing on the Internet that everybody wants to get rid of. Right. That's um, a good point. And nobody, nobody wants that out there, uh, and and there are vast quantities of organizations that are willing to get together on this. So this, right? Uh, I don't know. It's it's. I, I would tell these guys, you should stop doing this. Period. Yeah. <laughs> but um, when we started talking about these AI image generation models, yeah, that um, would would take the clothes off of a person in in a in a picture, right? Uh, it didn't matter who the picture was, when the person was naked, they were a woman. Oh, right. Right? Yeah, yeah. Because they were, they were, these things were designed by guys that wanted to see what these people would look like without their clothes on. Right. So if you fed it a picture of me, right. it would take my clothes off, but underneath there would be a female body. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And it would be very disturbing with your beard and long hair. And- <laughs> Maybe for you. Yes. <laughs> I saw some pictures of some uh, some world leaders who yeah. had had that happen to them. Right. They were hilarious. But I love seeing any politician in power being made fun of. So um, right. that's, that's, that's my own thing. But, yeah, so I'm wondering if these guys are targeting uh, – have they finally gone ahead and, and, and generated an AI model that, that will take the clothes off a man and make him look realistic? Yeah. Or uh, – or what? I mean, my and my point I asked you about earlier is now that this is becoming a uh, a public concern, and the FBI is even warning about it. Mm-hmm. If you're actually in a sextortion scam where somebody says, "I'm going to drop these pictures of you to your social media account," you can say, "Well, I'm just going to say they're AI generated. Go ahead and drop them." Right. And, right. And I'll tell everybody. I'll lie. I'll lie myself silly, telling everybody these are AI generated. Don't don't yeah. pay attention to them. Yes. I do think that that is probably an easier tack to take for middle-aged 
slightly pudgy white guys like yeah, you and me absolutely. Uh, <laughs> to say, yeah, have at it. I don't care. Right. You know, but, uh, <laughs> no, th- you do this to a kid, <laughs> right. you do this to someone who's 17 or 18 years old. Right. And you can create a real fear tornado in their head. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, you know, and we've heard horrible stories about these out, about outcomes here. Right. Uh, and like you said, you've said before, have the conversation with your kids. I don't care what, what, what the bad guys are telling you. Nothing's going to make me embarrassed of you or, or, or stop caring about you or, or be angry with you if this happens. Right. Okay. Right. Just come to me and talk about it and we'll, we'll be done with it. It'll, yeah. it'll be over and we'll just get through it. It'll be a short lived thing. Right. As opposed to taking something that, you know, losing money or whatever, um, or God forbid worse. Yeah. Yeah. This article also points out that, um, the tools to do this are available in some of the underground forums, the dark web markets. Um, the ones that are on legit resources like GitHub, uh, are gen- they generally have um, functionality that prevents them from generating these kinds of things. Right, yeah. Um, but, um, yeah, it, you know, I mean, this sort of thing has been around, well, probably as long as there's been photography, People have been manipulating it. You yes. know, you could do this with a, a couple of photos and a pair of scissors and some glue. Yeah. You could do a, a, a primitive job of it. And certainly, uh, as soon as Photoshop became a thing, um, you know, fakes, beca- fake nudes became a thing. Yes, they did. But what's changed here is just how easy it is to do, how quickly you can do it and how you can do it at scale and how you can automate it. Uh, it takes very little time and effort to have something come out that would be extremely high quality. Right. Um, and these it, are only going to get better. They are. Um, you know, they have some tips here. The, the FBI says that parents should monitor their children's online activity, of course. Yes. Um, parents should uh, conduct online searches to determine the amount of exposure their children have online. Yeah, Google your kids. Um, it says that um, adults who post images or videos should restrict the viewing access to a small private circle of friends and children's faces should always be blurred or masked. Um, I get that. I don't know how realistic that is yeah. uh, in the world of social media. I think I think that's probably, I, I would agree that's a best practice, but yeah. I don't but know how practical. Are you going to do that with every single picture you upload? Of, right. You know, and I, I, look, I do see people who are extraordinarily vigilant about it, and hats right. off to them, but um, I know I haven't been. Yeah, you know, me too. <laughs> there's tons of pictures of me and my kids and my family, and you know that's. I do part restrict of what social access media is. to my uh, my social media pages, particularly my uh, my Facebook page. Yeah, the only people that can see anything I put on Facebook, aside from my profile pic, are um, friends. Right. Not even friends of friends can see it. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that's wise. Yeah, and otherwise, you see my profile pics, which are. Composed of people who have passed away, and I, I make a temporary profile pic. Like, I think you might see Grant Imahara, Grant Imahara and Arlie Ermey and, uh-huh. um, for when those guys passed away. But um, generally, it's just a stapler. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Actually, Literally right a desktop now, stapler. <laughs> it's me uh, drawn in the style of Rick and Morty. Okay. Because uh, one of my daughter's friends is now actually a Rick and Morty comic book artist. Oh, wow. So she was signing my comic book. And drew a picture of me as a Rick and Morty character. Oh, that's neat. Because I'm making that my profile. There picture. you go. Uh, a couple other things they say here. They say if you do discover any of this content, be sure to report it to the authorities. Uh, and certainly the FBI wants to know about this sort of thing. 
Uh, and then they also note that in the UK, they have a law where um, they have amended their online safety bill and they're classifying the non-consensual sharing of deep fakes as a crime, which is great. I think that's a great idea. Yeah. I think we should be, uh, we should be doing that here in the U.S. as well. Yeah. Uh, as soon as possible, actually. Yeah. A, n- well. a non-consensual sharing of, uh, of fake media it should be a crime. Right. Yeah. I, if, if only we had some sort of federal privacy legislation, but uh, as Ben and I were talking about on Caveat recently, don't hold your breath. Right. <laughs> Sadly, with the way that uh, Congress is functioning these days, it's, uh, it's like molasses trying to get anything through there. Although but, cybersecurity seems to be the one place where they agree on things. It does. It does. But it still it seems like at the state level is where all the action is yeah. these days. So yeah. we'll see. All right. Well, we will have a link to that story in the show notes. Joe, what do you have for us? Dave, my story comes from Tripwire, and they have a blog post written by David Balaban. In the, I love the title of this. The Offbeat Social Engineering Tricks in a Scammer's Handbook. Mm-hmm. So this article, uh, it does a little bit of uh, front matter where it talks about uh, – what uh, what social engineering is and all that. Yeah. Of course, everyone who listens to this show on a regular basis already knows. Right. Um, but one of the first things that David talks about in this article is the sketchy at sign. And we were talking about this over on the CyberWire uh, uh, recently. Okay, yeah, I remember that. Sure. This is where somebody sends you a URL, and in the URL, there's an at sign. Mm-hmm. And uh, what happens when you're using a web-based URL, uh, your web browser, uh, will ignore everything in front of the at sign. Mm. Because the the at sign, everything before the at sign is designed for a URL that might not be connecting to a web service. It might be connecting to like uh, an old telnet service. Okay. And it was supposed to be used for username and password pairs. Okay. But the the HTTP protocol specifically says, just ignore everything before an at sign. Yeah. So I can say send you a link that says www.google.com at joesmaliciouswebpage.com, uh-huh. right? And your web browser will ignore google.com and go to Joe's Malicious web, Malicious webpage. Right. So that's how that works. Yeah. Uh, and of course, you can obfuscate the, um, the web address even more. And there's tons of things you can do. We talk about it in depth. I won't go into it here because it's way too technical uh, <laughs> for this podcast, but right. we do talk about it over there so listeners can go check it out. Yeah. Um, and that's the next thing that David talks about here is the malicious encoding, which we actually talked about there as well. Yeah. Um, the next thing he talks about is link preview exploitation, where David talks about the uh, compares, actually, link previews and Windows hiding file extensions. Uh, which, by the way, is the first thing I turn off on a new <laughs> on a new Windows install. I always wanted to see the file extensions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't know why anybody would not want to see the file extensions. It just doesn't make sense to me. I, of course, I started using a computer back in the days when you had DOS and you could only see the file extensions, right? You could <laughs> right. never turn that off. 8.3. Right, yeah. the old 8.3 file naming. Condition, right, right. Which I think was actually a holdover from CPM, if I'm not mistaken. Huh, okay. Um David says a similar hoax can be accomplished with URLs uh, using the exact same technique that I just described to you, for you, where you take the uh, the good name or the good company name at sign bad company name, mm. and then when you mouse over it, you you are actually going ahead and looking at the web page, hmm. right? 
Uh, I think that happens a lot on phones mm-hmm. where you do it. Uh, the next one he talks about, this is a, this is a very interesting uh, social engineering attack, phone reconnaissance. So imagine an attacker calling into uh, to the, the phone number space of your company. Okay. So they get your phone number space. They, maybe they get a directory online. Maybe they s- get enough phone numbers where they can say, okay, I see how this works. And they start dialing random numbers at your phone company. Right. And then someone is on vacation and their outbound voicemail message says, I'm on vacation right now. Mm-hmm. Ah, that's a good piece of information, isn't it? Because then the next thing I could do is figure out who that person talks to and works with and send them an email go, from some Gmail address going, hey, I'm on vacation right now and I really need to get this thing done, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And it can be the beginning or, the, or it can be the reconnaissance that leads to uh, an impersonation attack. Hmm. Then he talks about the good old paper mail lure. <laughs> and we've we've seen a few of these in our time on this show. Yeah. And these are the scams that actually take a good deal of expense to carry out. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we've seen people send in thumb drives with malicious software on them, or they're not actually thumb drives, they're just rubber ducks that are actually keyboard devices that enter a, that run a script when you plug them in. Yeah. Um, they could also be uh, go to this website and enter this information. There's really no limit to what you can do with this kind of attack. Okay. Is, is your your information is the information you gain is limitless. I think, it, but the but the the drawback to it is that it is an expensive attack, so you don't see it very often. To actually send someone a physical device. Yeah. Yeah. Or even just a physical mail message. Right. I almost got duped by one of these recently, with a uh, by a financial institution. This was a legitimate financial institution hmm. that knows some other financial att- activity has taken place in my life recently. Yeah. And they sent me an e- uh, a physical mail about it. And I looked at it and I was like, what is this? And my wife was like, I don't know. And it took, took us like two minutes of looking at it and scrutinizing it. Not two minutes, but 30 seconds of looking at it and scrutinizing it to go, oh, this is an ad. They mm-hmm. want us to call so they can try to sell us more financial products. Right. I, well, I don't need any more financial products. I just got this one. <laughs> right. Another great, this was uh, one of my favorites, uh, OS Int, they call it. Uh, it. Actually, that's what it's called, OS Int, but it actually stands for Open Source Intelligence. Uh, and this is really, really important for every social engineer out there. Uh, in fact, there is even a toolkit called the Social Engineering Toolkit that lets you use and or helps you document all of your uh, open source intelligence gathering before you even make a first call, mm. right? The problem with OSINT is that there is absolutely nothing you can do to prevent it. Mm-hmm. Nothing. If you've already got the information out there, it's going to be found by somebody. Uh, I mean, I guess there is one thing you can do, and that's not put a lot of stuff out there like we were talking on your story with the yeah. Facebook. Lock, yeah. lock down your social media and everything. But when you're a business, a lot of your stuff has to be out there uh, and and discoverable by people. Right. And when you're a business, the biggest source of open source intelligence gathering is going to be places like LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. And it just you can almost build an entire org chart from LinkedIn. <laughs> it's, yeah. It's amazing how much you can get. And finally, the last one that David talks about here is the rabbit hole manipulation. Now, mm. we've all heard of watering hole attacks, right? Right. But this is kind of similar in that it's uh, it's kind of a, he calls it an intricate method of social engineering. Uh, you try to lead people down a rabbit hole that you know will interest them. Oh. So you don't 
poison the water hole like a watering hole attack, but you create a whole new place for someone to go. Uh, and it turns out this is just a new, uh, a newly launched malicious website, but it's going to lure you in with, with some information that you, you may be interested in. Right. Presumably information that got through OSINT. Right. Correct. It can build this rabbit hole with, uh, OSINT information. Right. This pretty good article. Uh, it, you know, it, it comes up with a couple of things that are, uh, that are novel that, um, I hadn't seen before. Yeah. Uh, so I liked it. I thought it was pretty good. And uh, there's a link in the show notes, so everybody should check it out, I think. All right. Very good. Again, we will have links to all of those stories in our show notes, and we would love to hear from you. Our email address is hackinghumans at n2k.com. All right, Joe, it's time to move on to our catch of the day. Dave, our catch of the day comes from Tim, who writes, I got this telegram message from a dear friend, in quotes, deleted <laughs> account this morning. Uh, keep up the good work. So All right. by the time by the time Tim saw the uh, saw the message, the account had been deleted. Mm-hmm. All right. It goes like this. Hello, dear friend. I'm an analyst in the field of digital currencies. I have many years of experience in this field. Team analysts will share information about the coin here. If you're interested in currency, you're welcome to join us, and we will formulate an efficient plan for you. Join us at the link below. We'll make a detailed plan for you to help get you high returns. Help you earn an average daily income of $1,000 to $2,000. Wow. Dave, we're going to be rich. Of course we are. (laughs) The interesting thing is that the very first thing they send along is a link that takes them to WhatsApp, hmm. to a WhatsApp uh, a group in WhatsApp. It's a it's a group invite in WhatsApp. Huh. So they're the first thing they do is entice you. The very next thing they do is change platforms on you. Right, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Never go to a second location. Right, exactly. <laughs> Never go to the second location, and that's right. what this is. This right. is just a crypto scam. If you if you join into this, they're going to tell you there's going to be a, a bunch of people in this group who are like, oh, yeah, this is great. Yeah. They might not even be people. Yeah, I've made millions. Uh, yeah, you're nuts if you don't sign up for this. Right. Right. Uh, and they're going to tell you to go out and buy some cryptocurrency on a legitimate exchange and send it to them. Uh, right. Like we had the CTO of Kraken, or CSO, CISO of Kraken, Right. Uh, on a couple weeks ago, and he was talking about these kind of scams. Yeah. That's what's going to start here. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you, Tim, for sending that in. We do appreciate it. Joe, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Jeremy Fuchs. He is a cybersecurity researcher at Avanon. Uh, and we're talking about something called the replier attack. Here's my conversation with Jeremy Fuchs. So, you know, we're constantly monitoring all attacks that are being aimed at our customer environments. And we're sort of flagging ones that we think are interesting or unique or different and sending them to myself and a few others for analysis and say, hey, is this something that the the broader security community um, and even just the general audience might be interested in? Because if we're seeing it in many customer environments, certainly other customers and companies are seeing it around the globe. So 
Well, sort of as our general process, obviously we see some attacks that are very basic or very non-interesting and we block them and go about our merry way. Um, but when we see attacks like this one and you know many others that we publish, uh, we're looking for something unique, you know, maybe we've never seen it before or we've only seen it a few times, or just try something that's different and we're sort of impressed by the techniques and tactics and, and how the hackers are employing new strategies and what it says about what we need to do as security professionals to understand, you know, these different attacks, these different motivations, um, you know, and apply if necessary new strategies or, you know, how we defend it. So all the attacks that we publish, including this one, are attacks that we've blocked from the get-go. But when we see them, we're like, you know what, this is really kind of interesting and we think it's worthy of further discussion. Well, let's dig in here together. Can you describe to us what exactly is going on here? Yeah, so I think what's important first to start out with is the reply address in an email, or I'm sorry, the from field in an email is kind of a fake thing. I mean, that sounds kind of silly, but you know, you can put, just like when you write snail mail, if anyone ever does that anymore, you can put any address on the from line. I mean, you can put Santa Claus, right? There's no real legal requirement that you have to put your own address in the from section on your envelope. And some people don't even do that, right? Mm -hmm. So just like how we do that in snail mail, the same thing applies for email. We can kind of fudge where the email is coming from. And even more importantly, in this attack, we can change the reply to address. So when we click when an end user clicks reply at an email, we think it's going to the sender, and in many cases it is. In this case, and in other attacks we've seen, it's going somewhere else. So what the hackers are trying to do here is say, hey, I want you to think I'm sending, you're sending an email to the address that you see that looks like it comes from a company. However, what you're really doing is sending it to my personal hacking account. And you know, we, you know they'll change it, and it'll be a very similar domain or a very similar username, whatever it might be. But the idea is to catch people in something that they're not expecting to look at. I mean, if you, if you think about it, and one thing I like to do when I think about these attacks is, how would somebody fall for it, right? How many times a day do we reply to an email? Hundreds, right? Thousands. You know, So we see it comes from John Doe, we reply, and we have confidence that it's going back to John Doe, right? That's how email works. Right. But when there's a reply to address involved, and it's different, if you're not checking that, you will have no idea that it's going to a place other than where you think. And so mm. that's what this attack takes advantage of. And it's hoping that you're not noticing. And it's what a lot of social engineering is hoping you're not noticing. And what are the, the social engineering elements here? Who, who are they pretending to be? Yeah, so they're pretending to be a French energy company called Total Energy. They're obviously not Total Energy. And they are basically asking for requests for proposals to purchase a centrifuge. That was another thing that sort of ticked us off. We're like, hey, that's, emails don't, you know, people don't ask for centrifuges, right? right. That's not a common business. <laughs> not generally business on your report. average person's shopping list. Right, exactly. So we're like, okay. In addition to the technique of the reply to, we're like, well, what are they trying to do here, right? And so, you know, at the end of the day, we don't fully know. But when we see the term high-performance centrifuge, you know, your mind starts starts spinning. Hey, this may be, not only, maybe they're not trying to get money here, maybe they're trying to get something really, you know. So this is, so that's what they think. They're, the attack itself is really hoping that someone, think, A, thinks it's legitimate and has a, 
a need for a centrifuge or want to sell. It's a specific attack. And obviously, you know, the chances of success are probably quite low, but they will have harvested your email, maybe other information if you fill out a request, the request for a proposal, and they can do feature attacks. And that's another thing we see common is that attack one, hey, great, we get money or whatever, that's awesome. But we also want to set up attack two, three, and four. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is another way to do that because if you fill out the document, even if nothing comes to pass, they have more of your information and they can target something else down the line. So really, perhaps establishing a line of communication with someone and, and using keywords that they would understand specific to their industry. Yeah, exactly. I mean, look, we've all gotten those very basic credential harvesting emails where we click a link and it's a fake Microsoft login. That's sort of a one-and-done attack, right? I've got your login, all right, I'm going to move on. Maybe I'll sell it, maybe I'll do something else. You know, A lot of these social engineering attacks are about a long game, right? Hey, maybe I get all the information I needed in the first email and that's great. But I probably won't. I have to engage with you and email with you, right? And I have to continue a conversation and build trust and rapport so that you, the end user, thinks that the hacker is legitimate, the company is legitimate, all that stuff, and sending them money or information is just second nature. What we've noticed is that some are really good at it, some are not so good at it. <laughs> um, the ones that are really good at it and really technically savvy are usually the ones that can you know, make some money off of it. Hmm. Well, I mean, in a perfect world, folks would be looking at, at these reply addresses and, and really scrutinizing them. But of course, as you pointed out, you know, we're, we're all busy and we're applying to lots of emails every day, so that might not be practical. What other types of things can organizations put in place to protect themselves against this sort of thing? Yeah, absolutely. I, mean, I think there's two things. One, we need to educate people about the reply to fields. That probably has to become a broader part of our security awareness training. I mean, I think if you were to ask many of your employees about the reply to field, my guess is that many wouldn't even know it existed. Mm. So that's step number one. We just got to say, hey, there's there's more to email than just the to and from, right? It's a somewhat complex system of sending you know electronic messages. So that's number one. Number two, I think is really important that applies to this attack, but also really any sort of business email compromise attack, anything where you are potentially sending out money. Anytime you're sending out money or banking information, there needs to be some processes in place. It's not sufficient, really, for the average employee to be able to send out an invoice and banking information, right? There should be controls and processes and plans in place, you know, so that somebody can just fall for something, right? And that's not to say that the end user is doing something wrong. It's to protect the organization and to protect everybody from themselves, Hmm. Establishing the process so that we know for sure, 1,000%, that when we are paying an invoice, it is correct to the right person, to the right bank account, so that we don't get swindled. And that you know requires a bit of a step back. It requires different processes that are going to look different in every company, right? Depending on company size and industry, and are you a public company or not? There's going to be different processes, and it's going to be, and you got to figure out what makes sense and what works. But I think it's really important to build in these processes and systems so that even if an end user falls for an email that isn't legitimate, it won't be the end of the world because we've established that second layer or third layer of checks. You know, we talk so much in security about defense and depth, right? Not enough to have one system, you need two or three. Well, the same thing should go for, for finance and sending out invoices and especially when we're doing it all digitally, right? No one's really writing a physical check anymore. So 
that's all really important. And it's a little bit past the security realm, but I think it helps protect against the attacks that are aiming to expose those organizations that don't have those processes in place. Yeah. Is there any um, ability to use some sort of automation for this thing? You know, I'm thinking of very often you'll see organizations have warnings that pop up that say, hey, be extra careful. This comes from outside of our organization. Could you apply that to this or or is the is the reply field um, just too variable? Well, I mean, you can, you know, get pretty flexible on this, right? You can set a policy within your email security provider to say every email that comes outside my organization, whether it's google.com or a fake French energy website, has that external label, use caution type thing, right? Right. Um, you know, we can set things up so that reply to addresses are more highlighted, right? So say, hey, we notice a discrepancy. And you see a lot of these AI-based uh, email security systems doing things like this, where it says, hey, the replier and the reply to address don't match. Maybe something's up here. Mm. Um, another thing we can do is sort of add systems that say sort of these like break the glass workflows, which kind of what we refer to them as when it comes to sending data or money. That if we, you know, if you send an email that has sensitive data or sensitive information, personal information, whether it's a social security number or to say, hey, here's my credit card info and you spell out the number, having this sort of external data loss prevention that says, did you mean to send this, right? Just giving you that stop because, you know, as we said, we talk, as we were talking about, right, we're also busy, right? I mean, hey, you got an invoice to pay. Maybe it's 30 days late. You got to pay it, right? Right. We all don't, so it's, it's about creating sort of systems and workflows, automated or otherwise, that basically tell you to take a moment. And I, one of the things that I, you know, I review these phishing attacks all day. And one of the things that I consistently think is that if we all just took five minutes to read it, I think most of the most of us wouldn't respond hmm. and would think it's it's trash because you can always find something. Now I'm not saying you have to inspect it like it's a court document, but you just do some basic checks. Look at the sender address, look at the reply to address, hover over the links, check out the email. Like, does this email make sense? Like, why am I getting an email about a centrifuge? Right? Like, take the second to ask yourself those questions, and usually, again, not always, right? Nothing's foolproof, but usually. That would say, hey, maybe I, I might need to ask somebody about this email. You know, maybe let me ask, you know, Dave in IT what's what's up here. Maybe he can help. Yeah. And I think that's a, you know, yeah, getting us all to slow down, right? Wouldn't that be great if we could all could do that? But I do think that social engineers are expecting us to not slow down because we don't. We haven't given them evidence that we do. Um, right. And I think that's something that's really key and really helpful. And it goes to processes. And I'm not talking to bring everything to a halt, but take 30 extra seconds, you know. The yeah. world isn't gonna change in 30 seconds if you don't respond to that email. You know, maybe if you're reading it on your phone, take a second until you get back to your computer to read it, right? Sometimes it's a little bit easier to see those signs on a computer than a phone. So take the extra moment, reread the email, always ask somebody else if you're unsure, develop some processes in place. And I think you'll see things maybe get a little bit easier for your organization. I think it's a really great point, and it makes me think that, you know, it's something that leadership in any organization really needs to emphasize to say, we're going to support you taking the time you need to really scrutinize this because, you know, that five minutes you take for an email is a lot less than the cleanup if we do make a big mistake, right? (laughs) Absolutely. And I think, you know, 
in our go, go, go mentality, work and life, right? We're not thinking about what happens if this is successful, this attack, right? So right. first we've got to figure out, all right, maybe we paid $100,000 to some place we should have more. Now we've got to deal with it. Well, okay, we've got to try to get that back. And we've got to deal with insurance. And, you know, the work that's created by not doing so many things beforehand and not having preventative measures in place is, you know, it's tenfold, if not more. Well, it's, just, it's really about establishing that sort of security culture within an organization and within everybody, you know. It doesn't have to just be the top of the top. It's got to be every single person. And it's hard, right? It's, it's not easy to establish that stuff. We all take the security awareness trainings, and I'm sure 90% of us gloss over them. I mean, I'm guilty of doing the same thing, right? Mm-hmm. But it's important, and it, it can lead to you know, worse things down the road. And creating that sort of preventative, take-a-step-back culture um, within an organization has a lot of long-term benefits that are a lot cheaper and a lot easier than the alternative. Joe, what do you think? I have said this before, and I'm going to say this again. Email is terrible. (laughs) It's the worst. It's one of the oldest services on the internet. Yeah. And all of the email protocols that we still use today, like SNMP, no, that's SMTP, Simple Mail Transfer Protocol, IMAP, and POP. Yep. uh, Those were all developed in the 80s. Right. Right. And security was not really at the forefront of consideration of what was then ARPANET and transforming into the internet in the 80s. Right. Uh, It's the only system that everyone has that allows anyone in the world to put something into something you control, like your inbox in this case, specifically Mm. your inbox. Mm -hmm. There's no other service like that on the internet where when you get internet connections that automatically just let people do that. Right. Right unauthenticated, whatever, just send me an email and I'll get it. Right. And I don't know what the fix is here, but I do like griping about this. Um, <laughs> right. That thing that goes into your inbox, of course, it could be anything, uh, since, since, especially since they started doing HTML and rendering in, in these email clients. Yeah. Uh, and, it, and they could send along an attachment that could be malicious. Uh, to top it all off, there is little enforcement of the validation of the reply to address. Uh, which is by design, I think. Yeah. Uh, the from address and the and the reply to address do not have to be the same because somebody, when they were de- designing this, conceived a use case where they don't have to be the same. Right. Right? And there's probably a valid use case for it. I can't think of it off the top of my head, but I'm sure it's there. <laughs> so I'm not going to sit here and go, this was the stupidest thing ever. No, it made perfectly good sense it, at the time. It made perfectly good sense for somebody to do that. <laughs> right. Um, but the attack that that... Jeremy is talking about here, they have a send message from some bogus from address. Uh, and this is actually back in the 90s. Uh, this was really easy to do. I had a friend of mine that sent an email to a from a corporate email address to my corporate email address. We worked at the same company. And he, he put the from address as, uh, I think it was Bill Clinton at whitehouse.gov. Okay. Like this was back during the Clinton administration. <laughs> right, right. So, I mean, I would have been a little bit more creative. I would have said queso grande at (laughs) whitehouse.gov. But um, so that's just an illustration of how you can change the from address in these these protocols. Yeah. Uh, And there's also another place for a reply to address. So if you get an email that looks like it's coming from Joe at the CyberWire, 
that can be just entered in there and sent by anybody. Right. And then when you click reply, it doesn't go to Joe at the Cyberwire. It goes to somebody else. Right. Um, and that could be anybody in the world. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it's just one of the, I mean, like you say, it's it's one of these old protocols and there have been attempts to graft things on it over the years. Yeah, like we, we got, got things DMARC like DMARC and all these and, other, other yeah. technologies that help. Which help, but it, you've got to maintain backwards compatibility. Right. Which means you can't make those things mandatory. Right. Which I think it might be time for new a new messaging service on the internet. Mm. Um, and, you know, you leave email in place. Uh, you know, in fact, the term email was actually coined by CompuServe. Hmm. In uh, did you ever have a CompuServe account? I'm sure I did. Yeah, I don't I did. think I probably ever paid for it, but I had one <laughs> <laughs> back in the day. Yeah, <laughs> the days of dial-up and phone freaking. Oh my gosh, what yeah. a slow, slow connection it was. <laughs> yeah, but it seemed miraculous at the time. <laughs> right. I remember getting the weather maps and being so enamored with getting the weather maps. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it took. 10 minutes to download the map. And I, <laughs> I showed my wife and I, she was my girlfriend at the time. I said, look at this. I just got a weather map. We can see the satellite image of the earth. And she goes, that took 10 minutes. <laughs> right. The storm has come and gone in the right. time it took you to. <laughs> it's no longer raining. <laughs> but these attacks, these, these reply attacks, are like a lot of attacks, are the beginning of a chain of attacks. Yeah. Uh, and Jeremy mentions that. You're, you're, you're going to have... Uh, follow-on attacks, if you start replying to these guys, they're going to have information. First off, the first thing they get is that the email address they sent an email to is valid and somebody responded. Hmm. It's valid and there's somebody at the other end. Uh, That is good information for an attacker to have to begin with. And then everything else you send to them is more intelligence for them to have. Yeah. Uh, Again, we hear that companies need to have a process in place for sending out money, and this is a good point, disclosure of financial information. Hmm. There should be processes in place for, for that as well. Sending a check of more than, uh, more than $200 or some, some limit that your company decides is, is good for them, for their risk model, uh, is one piece of one process. Sending financial information to a recipient that asks for it is another process yeah. that has to be followed. And these processes are defense in depth. So not only do you have the first line of defense where you are hoping the person goes, hey, this is kind of a a weird request. I'm not going to respond to this. But should that fail and the person go, okay, let me go see if I can get that. You begin the other process of disclosing financial information to somebody and you have to go through these different checks and balances to make sure that everything is is valid before that information gets sent out. Right. Right. Um, Belt and suspenders. Right, exactly. Joe, why did the golfer wear two pairs of underwear? Because he got a hole in one. There you go. Ah, look, I figured that one out. (laughs) Nice. nice. (laughs) Jeremy says this great line, if we all just took five minutes, and uh, I think this so frequently, right? If we all just slowed down and took the time to do things, uh, but then I see that these kind of attacks still work. Yeah. And I'm still, I don't want to say disappointed, but saddened by it. Uh, I I understand that everybody's busy. It takes it takes a lot of time to do the work that you have to do, and an email is is an interruption in your day. Mm-hmm. Uh, slow down, take a little bit of extra time, and and think about what you're doing, and be cognizant of what you're doing. Yeah, that helps a lot. Absolutely. 
All right. Well, our thanks to Jeremy Fuchs from Avanon uh, for joining us. We do appreciate him taking the time. That is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. Our thanks to Harbor Labs and the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute for their participation. You can learn more at harborlabs.com and isi.jhu.edu. We're privileged that N2K and podcasts like Hacking Humans are part of the daily intelligence routine of many of the most influential leaders and operators in the public and private sector, as well as the critical security teams supporting the Fortune 500 and many of the world's preeminent intelligence and law enforcement agencies. N2K Strategic Workforce Intelligence optimizes the value of your biggest investment, your people. We make you smarter about your team while making your team smarter. Learn more at n2k.com. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Joe Kerrigan. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.